my mom's care felt very impersonal at best. I experienced multiple micro traumas being a family member around my mom's care. We need to be making healthcare personal again. Hi, I'm Dr. John Oden. This is Memoirs in Medicine, a podcast featuring the personal stories of healthcare professionals. And I'm Dr. David Spiro. On each episode, one healthcare worker will share a moment from their career that has profoundly affected them and provide one suggestion, no matter how big or small, for improving the practice of medicine. Through storytelling, we hope to highlight the humanity in healthcare and create a space for candid and respectful discussion. To protect patient privacy, some details may have been changed, but the stories are real. Welcome to Memoirs in Medicine. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Memoirs in Medicine. Uh, my name is John Oden. I'm a pediatric endocrinologist in Arkansas, and my partner is David Spiro, who is uh, ER physician, also in Arkansas. And in this episode, we're going to be talking to David about a very special story um, that he will be sharing with us. David, how are you doing? I'm doing great, and we'll normally be having guests, but we're interviewing each other for the first two episodes, and it's an honor to be here and uh, work with you, John. And uh, I'm really excited to get this podcast series going and uh, having folks hear a little bit about healthcare worker stories and because everyone has a story to tell right. about things that happen in the workplace. And uh, it's an opportunity to share uh, for the folks to share those stories for us to dig in a little bit deeper. Right. It's not necessarily a podcast to discuss the physiology and complexities of illness, but more kind of a, a deeper dive into how physicians become physicians, um, how we feel about you know, the, the context of, of our jobs and not what we do in our jobs, I guess, is a, a way of saying it. Yeah. And so today I thought I would share a little bit about a story that I had, not as a physician per se, but I was a family member and it was around, uh, it was around my mom. And this is, this is a really, really good story. I was, I was very moved by it. So um, I'm going to be quiet now and let David go. My mom had been sick for some time, and I've actually found out that my mother had passed away by an ICU doctor calling me and saying to me, David, your mother's heart rate is low, and uh, you sh- where are you? Are you in the hospital? And I said, no, I'm, I'm not even in the state. I'm traveling back to the hospital. And she said, your mother's now dead. And that's actually how I found out that my mother had passed away. It was that short, brief, and uh, dispassionate as I'm standing there at the gate in, in uh, an airport ready to, to board a plane. You knew she was in the hospital though, right? Yeah, my mom had a stroke, uh, a hemorrhagic stroke approximately a year prior, and uh, she she recovered decently from it, but it became clear to us over the last six months before she passed away that her health was declining and it seemed like she was developing rapid onset dementia and it was, and no one could really figure out what the problem was. And, uh, the story was really intense for me because I'm a pediatric ER physician and I work in a hospital and I was now witnessing healthcare in an adult facility at a, at, a, at a teaching hospital in the New York City area. And what I witnessed was 
in my opinion, close to uh, very, very crude and barbaric care that my mother received. And uh, it's really hard to witness and witness what I was seeing around me uh, at every time I, I went into the hospital. Do you feel like it was because of the volume that was in this ICU? I mean, were they overworked? Were they, I don't know, COVID maybe, maybe too much of too much? I felt like most of the people who were working there, and there were some amazing people that took care of my mother, some nurses and some physicians as well, but many of the people there felt like they were just getting my mom and the other patients through a mill, and it didn't feel personal. Uh, and it's really hard to uh, tell too many stories about it, but one story was around the fact that after my mother was hospitalized, she, I think she had a seizure event, we're unclear. And she was pretty uh, altered in terms of her mental state. And we went to visit her in the hospital uh, one morning in the ICU. And I walk in where she was uh, placed for a whole week and she wasn't in her bed. There was a man with a beard in her bed, oh. and uh, which was not my mom. And uh, my heart sank immediately. And I said to myself, I wonder if my mother has died uh, because she was quite sick and she was really unable to recognize folks. And, uh, and I asked the nurse where my mom was. And she said, I don't know who your mother is and walked away. And I'm sitting there standing there in the neuro ICU. And I do not know where my mother is in the hospital. Uh, everyone had my contact information. And it turns out that they moved her to another floor. And it took about 20 minutes to find out that a my mother was alive. And B, my mother was on another floor. Mm. And I would say that that was, a, that was a pretty difficult experience for me uh, as a family member. Right. Now, the nurse, so you said the nurse just kind of casually walked away, said, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't help you, and just walked away. Walked away uh, because she was busy doing other things. And then I, I, I found a, a floor manager, a nurse floor manager, who was kind enough to sit at a computer, find my mom, say, tell me my mother's alive, and then brought me to my mother's bed. I got to my mother's bed that day, and my mother's pulse ox, the machine that measures her oxygen level, was off of her finger. Her monitor was beeping, beep, 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 just beeping, and then it would go beep, uh, and it was alarming. And my mom was sitting in the bed asleep and the alarm was going off and no one knew anything about my mother on the floor. And when I found the nurse manager on the floor, we found the nurse and said, well, it's been a couple hours. I've been seeing other patients. I don't really know your mom hmm. and I'm going to get to her soon. And I said, well, her pulse oximeter is off. Can someone please put it back on? And someone came and put it back on her finger and hooked up the machine. And I think her IV was not working as well. And uh, again, I think no one was mean or cruel. It felt like if I wasn't there, if a family member was not there, my mother's care would be really challenging. And John, I felt like every time I met a new healthcare worker, I had to kind of explain to them that this is not the way my mother is baseline. My mother was essentially unconscious for most of the time or extremely confused and uh, uh, barely recognized folks. Uh, whereas 
before this last seizure event, before she was admitted to this last hospitalization, uh, she had a difficult time walking around, but she was lucid most of the time and was able to engage with us uh, on the phone and be able to use her iPad, et cetera. So I felt like as a family member, I had to continue, continually explain to the team that this is not my mother. And when you say, when you say the team, right, we're talking for those people who don't kind of know what an, what an inpatient team consists of. It's usually a, a, a leading physician or attending physician in, in a teaching hospital, medical assistants who help with blood pressure measurements and heart rate and weight, and, and then um, a, a main nurse, maybe, maybe one or two nurses that are kind of leading in the floor, right? Yes. And it was sad. You know, I was going through so many emotions. I was going through the idea that my mom might, might die. And my mom's never going to be able to go back into be, be in a relatively independent living situation. And then I had to keep thinking, you know, my mother is and was an independent woman. And I had to, my brother and I needed to keep talking about what she would want and what she would not want. Right. And for sure, my mother wouldn't want to live like that. And I was, in addition to thinking about, my mom's future and being an advocate for her, I was also, I also felt like I was trying to make sure that no one would do her harm. Like I was anxious because they did not know her and multiple things were going on. And there were multiple situations that happened that made me less and less confident in the care she was receiving. Yeah, that's tough. Did you have conversations with their attending physician? I did. And I would say most of the attending physicians were, were, were great. Uh, and, and, you know, they communicated with me and, uh, but, but there were situations like one situation happened where I got a call from the resident saying, we want to, we, we've just scheduled your mother for a G tube, which is a tube you put from the skin into the stomach, a gastrostomy tube to feed her. And I said, uh, excuse me, we didn't, we didn't, sign off on that. And she said, well, she's not a do not intubate and she's not a do not resuscitate, but it doesn't say that we can't put a G-tube in her. And I said, well, we, we need to have a discussion about this because I don't think my mother would want to have a feeding tube in her stomach. Right. He said, well, the next step for her is to go to a rehab facility and we can't move her from the hospital to the rehab facility unless she has a G-tube. Oh. And I, I said, well, what are the options? And he said, there are no other options. You, your mom's going to have to get a G2. And it felt hostile. And I said, is there a palliative care team? Is there a hospice team? And I felt a little bit of uh, frustration on the part of the resident uh, that this was going to just extend my mom's stay and a sense that my mom was just going to be on another list, uh, that they were going to have to keep taking care of her and just more work. Uh, there was a pressure to put her in a G-tube to get her in this mill and get her out of the facility where uh, really what my mom would have wanted is to not be on a G-tube and probably keep her comfortable and let her die peacefully in a place where we could all be there and uh, hold her hand while she passes. And my brother and I were pretty clear on that. And uh, what was great uh, is that my brother and I were pretty lockstep along the way around what my mother would have wanted. But again, receiving a call like that, John, 
Yeah. Uh, horrified me. It, it just uh, scared me that there were things that were going to be, be happening to her or not happening to her that if I wasn't there and visiting frequently in the hospital, things would be happening and I'd be, she, she would not be getting the care that she wanted. Right. That is heart-wrenching. But what strikes me is the fact that you felt, with a communication with that resident, the frustration in that person's voice. And I wonder if that resident really felt that. I, I bet he did. I bet he did. But I wonder if he felt that truly. Because there, there have been times when I'm on the phone with a family and I want them to go one way, but they go to the other way. And I, I don't mean it, but I'm sure my, my voice registers some different tone, you know? Yeah. And then so what happened is, is that I, I got a gift. You know, I'm uh, raised Jewish and uh, I'm sort of a Buddhist in some ways now and uh, not super religious, but um, I had a, uh, a higher spiritual experience that happened between my mother and myself. And I thought I would share that with you and the audience. All right. Um, this is going to be hard. But I, I was there for a week, and uh, my mom had stabilized, and she had, she had gone to the floor. Uh-huh. And uh, I was going to go the next day to Philadelphia to see my son play squash. He's, he plays squash for college, uh, racket sport. So uh, I had uh, spent the night at my mom's condo. Uh, that was hard going back from the hospital to her condo and seeing all of her things. And I came back and I was thinking, you know, I have a feeling I just had a gut feeling. Uh, this was the last time I was going to see my mother mm. and uh, no indications at that point that that would happen, but just had a gut feeling about it. Right. I, I walked into the hospital that morning to say goodbye to her. And, and up until that point, she was really confused saying one word sentences not really following too much and uh, smiling, did not seem uncomfortable, but no no real conversation for about a week or two uh, in the ICU and then on the floor. And then I I walked in to just make sure she was okay and uh, et cetera. And uh, I, uh, I walked in and she said, Hey Dave. Hmm. And so she's one of a few people to call me Dave as opposed to David. And I, and I said, Hey, Hey mom. And she said, uh, how are you? I said, I'm great. How are you? And she said, how long have I been here for? Oh, wow. And so she was, John, she was lucid, like incredibly lucid. And I said, uh, well, you've been here for two weeks, mom. And, uh, she said, where is everyone? And I said, well, I'm going to Philadelphia today to see Alec. And she said, Oh, that's great. And, talked about Alec. We talked about my boys and um, we had this beautiful conversation and I had hope that maybe she was going to recover at that point. And um, 48 hours later, she got an infection in her urine, which went into her blood Yeah, and she went into the ICU. And at that point I had, I had come back down to Arkansas because I had some shifts in the emergency department and, uh, Four, four or five days later, she was dead. Oh, yeah. yeah. I had a lucid winter with her. I had a chance to really meaningfully say goodbye to her in a way that I never thought would happen. And uh, I have to believe there was some sort of higher power that allowed that to happen. It, it was uncanny. 
And even though I knew I was leaving to go see my son play squash, give my mom a hug, tell her I love her one last time, I still had a feeling I was, as I was walking out of the hospital that my mom was never going to uh, step foot outside the hospital, and that was true. Yeah. Well, that was a gift, though. Yeah, that was a that was very special. It was a gift, John, and I think that there are things that happen in medicine, and maybe we could talk about some other stories that have happened along the way as we talk to our guests. But I think there are things that happen in medicine all the time that can't always be explained uh, by the science that we've been taught in medical school. That is absolutely true. What, what, I, what I came away from this, and I, I, we published an article, I, I had written an article and it was published in JAMA yeah. uh, calling Making, Making Healthcare Personal Again about the story. It was published in one of the October weeklies of, of the Journal of the American Medical Association or JAMA, is that I felt like we need to make healthcare personal again. And uh, my mom's care felt very impersonal uh, at best. And experiencing that story made me want to be a better emergency physician for children. And there are times in the emergency department that you're just seeing a lot of kids and you're just trying to get through your day. I'm sure the same thing happens for you in clinic or when you're rounding on children sick in the hospital with various things. And they're patients. But behind the word patient is a family. Behind the word patient is a family. They're all having their own individual experiences and uh, oftentimes their own individual micro traumas. And I experienced multiple micro traumas being a family member around my mom's care. Yeah. We need to be making healthcare personal again. And for me, the elderly and the child are vulnerable populations, and we need to be doing a better job protecting those patients and making the experience a better experience for them and for their families. Yeah, that's a, a very good point. Any take-home thoughts from, from your, your end hearing the story? Well, yes, there are different ones from different perspectives, but I think yours is the one that, is, that should reign over all of it. The take-home message from me was from the doctor slash nurse's perspective is that you will find that this will probably only get worse as our medical profession continues down the road. It's continuing down until this, the pendulum of, of productivity and coverage changes and that we decide to hire more nurses and hire more docs so that they are not overly stressed. Yes. I mean, I know you've seen it in the ER when you've got 60 kids waiting in the waiting room and, and you've got two docs seeing all of them, you know, you just can't, you can't wear a smile all the time. And that, that I I think as time goes on, people are going to finally figure out that there's got to be a way to do things better from everybody's perspective. I agree. Well, Thank you, John, for letting me share the story today. And I look forward to future episodes where we explore these kind of stories with many of the healthcare personnel that we end up talking to. Well, this one was a tough one, David, and I thank you for sharing it with us. I think that I hope as we get our more podcasts under our belt, we, we, we figure out some of the answers to these tough questions. But thank you. Thank you. Hope everyone has a great day. Yeah.
Visit memoirsinmedicine.com to learn more about this program, sign up for our newsletter, or leave us a voicemail. That's memoirsinmedicine.com. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or in other major podcasting apps, so you can have episodes delivered to you automatically on the day they're released. Till next time.
unfortunately, it's not not the the cold nature of the call that you got when your mother passed. That's that's not a proud moment in that doctor's repertoire. Probably not an uncommon one, though. 